in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, in this last year, it seems like a lot of things have been kind of turned upside down within our society. We had, of course, the pandemic to go through, a pretty volatile election to go through. And then there's a lot of different cultural things. So we're going to address a few subjects over the next few weeks dealing with this idea of things being upside down within our culture at the moment. You know, I can really sympathize with Jude. In verses 3 and 4, Jude said this. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude starts off his very short letter and he says this, I wanted to write to you about something else. I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation. He said, but you know what? I feel a necessity upon me to address a different subject wherein I need to earnestly contend for the faith. And so it's not what he wanted to write to them. It's not the conversation that he wanted to be in, but he found it necessary to do so. That's where my heart's at today. Uh, today we're discussing a subject that I don't like. I don't, I don't enjoy it. I'd, I'd rather be preaching something else. But at the same time, when things are going on within our society and within our culture that the Word of God speaks to, and our culture seems to be running the other direction, then that's kind of my job. And I don't want to shirk that responsibility either. And so the content of the message today is not overly uh, pleasant. Uh, at the same time, uh, I would like to offer this to people with, with children here, is that um, if you want your children to not be involved in this, then this is a good time to let them go. Uh, Lisa's taken a group of children over to the park, and they can go over there and play at the park. And that's a fitting place for them to be, and I'll tell you why. You know what, not long ago in, in my family, we ended up involved in some conversations right along this alley. They weren't a, necessarily a conversation that my family was directly involved in, but because of friendships that they have, conversations that they were brought into, my family got brought into a place where we had to have some conversations. And you know what? It really made me mad because I thought when my grandkids are at an age where they should be thinking about playing at the park and things like that, then that's what I want them thinking about. I don't want them having to deal with some of the issues that are going on within our society because innocence once lost is just lost. You don't regain it. But unfortunately, we live in a time and a day where at the same time that I offer an avenue for letting children leave, I offer an encouragement to think it through because you've got to think about where you want your children to hear these conversations because these conversations should be taking place in our church and in your homes. But the culture is rapidly leading your children into these conversations void of those two contexts. Nickelodeon has a transgender cartoon now targeted at your children and celebrating our differences. Blue's Clues hosted a pride parade 
also with fancy songs and things to encourage the differences. Sesame Street now has a transgender character on the Sesame Street program. And so as much as we would love to not have this conversation and let our children play at the park in innocence, this conversation is forced. It's going to be pushed at your children and your grandchildren until these people seemingly get their way. And so with that kind of an influence within our society, we cannot leave the next generation void of the truths of the Word of God as they apply to this subject, nor can we just stand back idly. In fact, I was listening to somebody yesterday and they were talking about how in these issues they don't necessarily need you on ban, they just need you to not care. Just say, ah, it doesn't affect me. In fact, I found that that has been a lot of people's response to this issue, and not only a lot of people in general's response to this issue, but a lot of Christians' response to this issue is that, look, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want it to affect my life. I just want to be left alone. Just as long as you leave me alone, you can leave me out of it. But it's not going to leave you alone. They're trying to find ways to get it into the curriculum in the school systems. In fact, one of the things when I read about the song... They made a song about families marching in the pride parade. And one comment was, this should be taught to the children right along with the Star-Spangled Banner. And that whatever that other song is about the old glory or something was the way they put it. Well, what we're looking at today is we're going to look in this little series that we're going to put together called Upside Down, which is us taking a look at our culture and the different things in our culture, and we're going to analyze them from a biblical perspective and say, what does God think about these elements of our culture? Today, the one that we're dealing with is homosexuality. The Bible's not vague. As we read the different passages, you're going to find that the Bible's not unclear. Now, there's a lot of arguments that you can make against homosexuality. The relationships itself are not healthy. I know that in the statistics that I have read, They say that the average person that's involved in homosexual behavior has in their lifetime 500 different partners. 80% of people involved in homosexuality state that half of their partners are people unknown to them. In other words, they're a perfect stranger. And so it's not a healthy lifestyle. The picture that we're given is this idea that you can't help who you love and it's just another loving relationship. The statistics do not bear that out. The lifestyle does not bear that out. I'm not saying that every lifestyle matches this. But the numbers, the numbers just don't show it. So they're, they're unhealthy relationships in many ways. They're unhealthy relationships uh, physically as well. If you're involved in homosexual activity, you're a thousand times more likely to contract AIDS. You're a hundred times more likely even to be murdered. And that's not because people that are against homosexuality are murdering you. They're doing it to each other. There's a, there's a dynamic to that relationship that is explosive. 80% of those involved in homosexuality have sexually transmitted diseases. One in 20 have been involved in uh, child molestation. General society is less than one in 500 compared to the one in 20. You realize that only 2% of people that live in a homosexual behavior, and I'm going to keep calling it that way because I don't believe there are homosexuals, it's a behavior. Only 2% of them live to age 65, with the median age being 39. And so it is an unhealthy practice. But here's the deal. Today, that's not really going to be our focus. There are a whole lot more statistics that you can go down and find on those paths, but that's not where we're going to be concerning ourselves with today. Today, I want to concern ourselves with simply this. What does God say about the issue of homosexuality? We're going to look at lots of different passages and verses, and we're going to find these two things. We're going to find that the Bible states that homosexuality is a sin, 
And the Bible also illustrates that homosexuality is a sin. And we're going to deal with just those two simple points. Well, as we begin to look at it today, we start in our passage here. And notice there's a whole list of sin that is listed within this passage. Homosexuality is just one of the sins. It's actually used two words in the Greek language. One of the words refers to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. In some translations, it's translated effeminate, the one that's playing the part of a woman. And the other one deals with the homosexual male part of that activity. But notice in our passage, it says... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. If you can live comfortably in a life of sin, you are not part of God's kingdom. You are not part of His family. You have not been saved. He's making that very clear. And then he goes into a whole list of different sins. Sexual immorality, which is sex outside of marriage. Adultery, which is sex outside of your marriage, but between married people, and then homosexuality. All of it is just taking sex outside of the parameters that God has made for sexuality, which sexuality is a beautiful thing, celebrating the marriage relationship. And it's created and ordained by God, but outside of these things, God condemns it. And God says, look, if you can live comfortably in these, then you are not somebody that has experienced the Holy Spirit coming inside of you. You're not somebody who's been redeemed out from under their sin. You're still stuck in it. He says you're not part of the kingdom of God. Now, all of that with this great hope, this great hope and this loving desire on God's part, because he lists the sins of which homosexuality is is one of them. And then in the end, as he says to the Corinthian church, and such were some of you. In other words, within the Corinthian church, you had people that were involved in sexual immorality, but they got saved out of it. You have people that were involved in adultery, they got saved out of it. People that were involved in homosexuality, they got saved out of it. People that were involved in all these other sins that he lists here, and we'll deal with all these others at a different time, but they got saved out of it. That's what the church is to be. The church is not a group of people that are standing there casting down upon their community, feeling holier than everybody else. We are just people that have been redeemed from our past sins and we're striving to live out from under the bondage of those things. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's writing these things to these people, it's not with malice in his heart. He says, look, don't be confused. If you're trying to live in that sin and not repent from it, you're not part of the kingdom. But you can be. You can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. You can be washed. You can be clean. But he states emphatically that this is outside of God's will and that if this is part of our life, we're outside of God's family. As we look within the Old Testament, we're going to kind of start there. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22 through 30, the Bible says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, so to make yourself unclean with it, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons 
who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now you can't really put it a whole lot more plainly than that. God tells us very clearly in His Word that He's against these practices. Now, some people will come along and say, well, that's, that's not really dealing with that. It's addressing with idolatry. Because in the pagan societies, they worshipped other gods. And in the worship of those other gods, they got into all kinds of sexual activity as actually part of their worship. So this is actually talking about worshipping other gods through this. It's not talking about the doing of it itself. But you can see from a simple reading of the passage, that just is not the case. You just clearly says, you do not lie with a man like you lie with a woman. And obviously the word lie means a lot more than just lie down. It's in the same way that in the Bible talks about a, a husband knowing his wife means in, a, in an intimate, in a sexual sense. Well, God specifically says here that is absolutely not to be tolerated. And look at the context of it. They've moved into the promised land. And this is what he tells them. He says, remember, this place was inhabited by people before you got here. The people before you lived like this. They participated in these things. And he says that's exactly why the land vomited them out. It puked them up. God says because they did these things, I drove them out before you and brought you in. And he says, here's the warning. If you do the same things they did, it will vomit you out as well. God says even to you, even to Israel, even my chosen people, Abraham's descendants, This land will vomit you out if you participate in these same things that those people did. Now, some people at this point would argue, well, that's the law. Jesus redeemed us out from under the law. He did, but He redeemed us. In other words, He purchased us out of our sin, not to stay in our sin. Not only that, but Jesus didn't end the existence of the law. He fulfilled it. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter. 1 verses 8 through 12, he would tell Timothy this. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so the law, God's law, is good if we use it right. But how is it supposed to be used? Well, that's what he goes on to say. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law still is useful, as long as we understand what it's for. It was never put there for you to earn your way up to heaven. You can't be approved before God by keeping the law. You don't make laws for good people. You make laws for bad people. Think about it. If everybody just did what was right all the time, you wouldn't need one law ever. Because they would just do it. So why, why make a rule that nobody's breaking? You know when you need rules? is when you see that people keep doing this thing that is bad. So we need to make a law to stop them from doing it or to make a penalty to try to stop them from doing it or to finally lock them away so that they can't do it anymore. And that's what he says. He says that's what the laws are for. So in other words, what he's saying is the law is not going to get you to heaven. It's not going to make you approved before God. But it is a good barometer of what is right and wrong. And what does the law say? He lists right within here. One of the things that he lists is homosexuality. He says the law still applies. It's still wrong. God hasn't changed His mind. Now, as you notice within these passages, just like in this next one in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13, it says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Notice it doesn't say anything about 
a relationship. It doesn't say anything about circumstances because none of that matters. This is an area that is just wrong. There's not a right way to do this. God, you know, because some people will say, well, because back in those days, the homosexuality that was being practiced wasn't within a consenting, loving relationship. It doesn't bring that up at all. It's not about that. It's not about whether it's a, in a consensual, loving relationship. It's about whether it lines up with God's creation. God created man and woman. And those two to come together as husband and wife. And then have children. And then that makes a family. And today we're trying to redefine everything. If you look on the, the, the Blue's Clues site or whatever, or his cartoon, it shows... Look at this family. This family has two mommies. Look at this family. This family has two daddies. Look at this family. It has four different trans people within this family. Here's the deal. It's not reality. It is impossible to make a family out of two mommies. It's impossible to make a family out of two daddies. And there's no such thing as a trans person. We come into this world male or female. That's what God is saying. He just makes it very simple. If you lie with somebody of the same sex, it is wrong. Period. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5, we see that it also applied to cross-dressing. The Bible dealt with that. See, all these things are not new. They're, they've been around for years. It was the fall of the Roman Empire and it was the fall of the Greek Empire before that. It's going to be the fall of America if we don't wake up and turn around. Clear back in the time of Moses, people were already doing these things. That's why God's making the rule about them. And he says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. And whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And so now back at that time, you know, they all had robes of some sort. But obviously there was a difference between the way a man dressed and a woman's a way a woman dresses. There always will be. He says, don't try to look like the other one. Not only dealing with that, he also deals with transgender issues back in Deuteronomy also. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, it says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Like I said, he's pretty blunt. There were, obviously, there were people that actually had this happen. Why? Well, they did it for horrible, same reasons they're doing it today. It sounds a little more crude when the Bible says it right here, but today we talk about procedures that they go in for and they go into a nice sterile doctor's office or, or hospital to have these different things done. But when you boil right down to it, it's doing the same thing as what the Bible says right here. You just find a nicer way to say things. Or a more vague way of saying things. The Bible just makes it clear. People back at that time were actually having gender reassignment. And why was it happening? Because of homosexual relationships, because of male prostitution within the temples, because of a variety of reasons, just like there are a variety of reasons today, but it already existed. What does God say? None of them will be in my assembly. Same thing 1 Corinthians said, none of them are part of my kingdom. Well, wait a minute. In the New Testament, if they repent, put their faith in Christ, then they're cleaned. They're washed clean. Well, same avenue was open to them back then as well. That just because you became a eunuch, you went through this procedure which, which physically harmed you, which that is, that is what it's doing. It's physically harming a lot of people around our country and genetically harming a lot of people around our country today. But even though you went through those procedures, didn't mean that you couldn't be forgiven, that you couldn't be restored. In fact, we find in Isaiah teaching concerning that. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from this people. And let not the eunuch say, 
And that's what they refer to them as, uh, the eunuchs, taking away their manhood, let's say. Be, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So notice what he said. Just as he said back during the giving of the law that if you did this, these things, you are not part of the assembly. You are cut off. He also says, if you're one of those eunuchs that went through that, but now you have repented and you keep God's Sabbath and you do those things that are honoring and pleasing to God, he says, don't, don't say my life is over. Don't say I'm a dry tree and good for nothing. God is saying, no, I can restore you. Now, obviously, he's not going to restore the physical damage and some of those things that you suffered in this time. But he says, I can restore you. I can make your life valuable. I can make your life profitable. You can be redeemed. What was open to them in the Old Testament is exactly what's open in the New Testament. Always that offer of forgiveness. Always that experience of salvation that can occur. It's interesting when you get up to the book of Acts, chapter 8. God takes Philip and puts him out in the desert for the purpose of meeting this one chariot that's coming by. And he's coming by and he's reading the book of Isaiah, which we just read out of. I don't know. If, I don't think it was that passage. He was reading one about the Messiah, but he might have covered this passage. He's reading about the Messiah and he comes across Philip. Philip asks that guy, he says, do you know what you're reading? And the guy said, I don't know how I could unless somebody explains it to me. And Philip explains it to him. And that guy comes to Christ. He puts his faith in Christ and they come across some water and he gets off and he gets baptized by Philip right there. That guy is referred to as a eunuch from Ethiopia. So he was somebody that had gone through this kind of a procedure, this kind of a change, but now is repenting and putting his faith in Christ. And we see the gospel spreading through him over into Ethiopia. And that's how the gospel will get there, at least for the time being. Well, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, God lays it out again very explicitly, just in case we had any questions on these other very blunt and very bold passages. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So to put that in a nutshell, he's saying, look, if, if you look back at the world and mankind... Mankind has not necessarily followed God. People have rejected God and turned away from God, even though God's presence and God's power, the Godhead, should be clearly seen in the things that we can see when we look around. Because how did all this stuff get here? Creation is the only thing that makes sense when you look at all the complexity and, and how everything fits together as one unit within our world. And Enough of that for now, but another conversation. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the, the amazing power of God is obvious in this world, but people, even though they're going to stay religious, will often turn away from God and worship other things. And when that happens, they get drawn away from God, and God eventually even gives them up. Notice it goes on from there in Romans chapter 1, and it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, notice, it's very clear here. What is unnatural about this? Anytime same-sex relation like that, that is what's unnatural. The unnatural part is that man was made for the woman and the woman for the man. And if you get outside of that boundary, it ceases to be natural. And, and there really shouldn't be any real confusion on this. One of the things that I've often thought is there's not a worldview out there where this makes any sense at all. Even if you don't believe in God at all, even if you think that this whole place came into being by, by some big bang, which I still don't know what would have blown up, but, but uh, even if you're going to just accept it at that, and evolution is the case, evolution is based on survival of the fittest. Homosexuality cannot be fittest because it cannot reproduce. Without the family structure the way God made it, the family cannot survive. It cannot reproduce itself. It doesn't make any sense. So no matter what worldview you come from, homosexuality cannot be a good idea. But yet we're supposed to think it's so brave to come out as one. I just, I just don't understand it. It's, it's beyond me. But notice in the passage, how do we get there? So the unnatural part is the fact that it's same-sex marriage. How did we get there? It's the word that keeps repeated here, exchanged. Notice, it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images bringing up idolatry. And some people will say, see, this, this passage isn't about homosexuality, it's about idolatry. And they are right in a sense. This passage is, start with idolatry. But it, the point that it makes is, when you fall into idolatry, when you exchange God for something lesser, it impacts your morality. And the Bible is saying, look at the level of depravity you, you will drop to if you get rid of God. You will get down all the way to sinning against nature itself in the practice of homosexuality. And so it says they exchanged the glory of God for the idols. And it also says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And if you do those two things, it says you exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And so when we get to the point where we've rejected God, replaced Him with something else, rejected truth, replaced it with something else, the next step is nature. We're going to go not only against God, not only against the truth, but against nature itself. And that's where we see our society headed in the things that it allows. Well, the passage then continues and says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, so there again, another long list of sins. Now, for our purposes this morning, we're just focused on one. It says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
You realize that, O Christian? It's not just about whether or not you participate yourself. It's about what you approve of. Not only can we not participate in that kind of a behavior, we cannot approve of that kind of behavior in anybody else's life. We cannot. It goes directly against the gospel and against our faith to approve of that kind of behavior. And so when you look at it and you begin to see churches, I'll put air quotes around that, affirming homosexual relationships and ordaining people that practice homosexuality into the ministry of the church, that church, well, I think it's no longer a church. It's no longer a legitimate one. In other words, this isn't just reaching out to people that are in sin. We need to continue to do that forever. But this is about taking their sin and saying, oh, it's no problem. You're completely all right. How loving is that? Let me ask you this. Is a doctor loving that knows their patient has cancer and doesn't tell them? that they have cancer, that they have something that's life-threatening, that's going to take their life when there are treatments that are available? No, that is mean. Christians are doing the same thing. If we just ignore this, if we don't recognize and state that homosexuality is a sin, since the Bible clearly labels it as a sin that will keep you outside of God's family, a sin that will condemn you to hell forever, if we don't continue to call that for what it is so that we can redeem people out of that, that is hateful. That is very hateful. That is not loving indeed. We need the truth and love. If you're trying to have love without the truth, it is not loving. And if you're trying to have truth without love, it's not truthful either. You've got to have all of it. And God's truth weighs in very soundly. Homosexuality is a sin. One that can be repented of. It's, it's not an orientation. It's not, it's not anything but the act itself. And that is a sin. But you say, well, some people seem to be bent toward it. Some people seem to be oriented toward it. Be given to it. Yeah, but what, what sin isn't like that? There, there are people that are bent towards anger issues also. There are people that are bent towards violence. There are people that are bent towards drug addictions and drug, drug usage and, and alcohol issues. There's people that are bent towards pornography. There's people that are bent towards pedophilia. Does that mean that that, that just then makes it natural for them? So go ahead and do it? No. But that's really what our society has been all about is taking away the negative stigma that goes with bad behavior. And we need to stop it. There is negative and harmful and hurtful and just wrong behavior. And it needs to keep that stigma because that's what keeps people safe and protects them from it. Well, the Bible plainly states that it is sin. But then not only that, the Bible also plainly illustrates that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, for that, if we go back to Genesis chapter 19 is the most obvious example of it. It's dealing with the city of Sodom. Two angels had come to Abraham and visited with Abraham, told him they were gonna, going to destroy the city of Sodom. Abraham knows the city is a wicked place, but here's another really cool insight into God's nature. Just like we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Abraham argues with God. Abraham says, God, what if there's 50 people if there's 50 people there that are righteous, will you still destroy the city? God said, no, not with 50. Abraham says, how about, how about, he just starts working him down. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? A whole bunch of numbers in between. Finally, he gets God down to 10 people. God, if there's just 10 people left, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Would you, or would you spare the city for 10 people? God says, I'll spare the city for 10 people. And then the two angels go down to Sodom to see what they find at Sodom. And they find Lot, Abraham's nephew. 
And he's about it for the righteous people in Sodom. Well, we see within the passage what happens. He first, they first go to the city square where they find Lot. And Lot strikes up a conversation with them. And they said, uh, he invites them to his home to stay for the night. And they say, no, we'll just stay. We'll just stay in the town square. We're fine. And he says, no, you really can't. You've got to come with me. And so they go with him to his house. Well, the people of the town find out about it. It says, two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town, uh, in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside with him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city of the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And that's for uh, that's language for sexually. Uh, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. And said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, that's about as horrible of a plan as I could think of in the situation. I don't, I don't, I don't know what he's thinking there. But, but uh, anyway, to go on with it. But they said, so their response was absolutely not, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become... Uh, the judge, talking about Lot, they said, look, you were kind of a newcomer here and now you're going to judge us. He says, now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I can't imagine. They're completely, they've been struck blind and they're still groping for the door. Um, but so you see the passion that's involved behind this act that they want to commit. Now, that's where we see an illustration of homosexuality involved in the Bible and passion run amok. Now, there's obviously a lot of things involved in, in these areas and some of them people have tried to push the blame off onto. Some have said, well, it's, it's not about homosexuality or homosexual acts. It's about um, uh, non-consensual homosexuality because they're trying to force their way. And so that's what that's about. Um, other people, some have it actually just say, well, it's about hospitality. Um, the people of Sodom are committing the sin of being unhospitable to the strangers in the way that they're treating them there. And others have said, no, it's, it's pride. Pride was the main sin. And the Bible helps us sort those things out because it addresses them in a couple different passages. In Ezekiel, in talking about what's going on at Sodom, it says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48 through 50, it says, As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom. So he's talking to Israel. And he's, he's telling Israel, look, you're, you're like, you're like Sodom. Remember Sodom who God judged years before? This was many years later, centuries later. He says, remember, he says, I'm going to call her your sister because you're behaving just like her. And so Israel has fallen into some of the same sins as Sodom. And he says, Sodom and her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. 
but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and didn't and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So he's he's looking back at Sodom's experience and he's telling Israel, This is Sodom's problem. They're doing they did the same thing you do. Now what does their problem stem from? Pride. He says she was Sodom was proud. They were arrogant. And why were they arrogant? Life was too soft. That's to be honest with you, I think that's a lot of America's problem. Life's gotten too soft. You know, earlier on in our nation's history, when we were stronger in our moral values, uh, life was harder. Life was more difficult. You had to work at it to survive. Now, we hardly work at it to play for the things that entertain us. Even that comes easy. Life is, life is too easy. And that's what he tells Israel. You had it too soft. You had it, you had it too easy. And you become proud and you became arrogant. And so some people say, see, it's not the sin of homosexuality, it's the sin of pride. You know what? They're not inseparable. What do they call the gay parades? I think the term that needs to be lost is gay, because it's not happy. But what, what do they call them? The pride parade. So you see, even, even if you're going to make it pride, that's what they're... And see, that's what Sodom... Sodom was... In their homosexuality, in their homosexual acts, they were proud of it. They weren't in the closet, so to speak. They were out in front. They were out with it. They were fine with it. They were arrogant about it. And that's what God's telling Israel now. You're just like Sodom was. Sodom was arrogant about their sin. They were flying it in the face of God and others. He says, Israel, you've gotten to the same point where you're, and now we're having parades down Main Street, International Falls, doing the same thing. You see, it is the same thing. And that's what even toward the end of the passage it says they were haughty and they did an abomination. Remember that word abomination from back in the law? If a man lies with a man, it's an abomination. They did that abomination and God says, and so I removed them and now I'm going to remove you, Israel. The same happens in the New Testament. If we read farther into the book of Jude, which we started off with at the beginning of this service, In Jude verse 7 it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, now in the New Testament, God is doing the same thing He did in the Old Testament with Ezekiel. When Ezekiel looked back at Sodom and says, look at the judgment of Sodom, Israel, you're facing the same thing because you're doing the same thing. In the New Testament, Jude is looking back at that experience and saying, we have the perfect example. We have the perfect illustration. When people get to that point, when they are exercising these unnatural desires, they're acting in this abominable way. It is under the judgment of God, just like Romans said when it said that it's under the wrath of God. In Isaiah chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, he says, For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, 
infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. And the word woman here, it's a little bit difficult to tell. It could be referring to women or to uh, effeminate men. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. You see, God in this passage in Isaiah says it plainly. He says, look, just like Sodom was arrogant and out there with their sin, that's what we get to when homosexuality becomes more prevalent in our society. And God says, again, just like He did in 1 Corinthians, don't be deceived. What does He say here in this passage? He says, oh my people, your guides... Your guides. He's talking about their leaders, their leadership. He said, oh my people, your guides mislead you. Your guides mislead you. You know, it's been a long time since we've had a White House that didn't have homosexual members of the cabinet. And now they're more prevalent than ever. Now if you look at the if you look at the promotions that are trying to recruit people for armed forces, you're going to find them focusing on transgender people and a new definition of a family. That's what our leadership is pushing forward. I remember how my heart sunk when under the Obama administration the rainbows shot up the front of the White House. And I love the rainbow for what it really means. God's compassionate in His mercy. But not for what it's being used for today as it celebrates exactly that which God says is shameful and unnatural. So as Christians, as Christians, we gotta, we got to be true. No matter what our culture, our society puts forward, no matter how much more mainstream it gets pushed as, and I don't, still don't think it is all that, but even if it does... We cannot, absolutely cannot participate. You're not even a Christian if you're going to participate. We cannot even approve. We cannot condone that kind of behavior. Why? Because God made it very clear. Now, this last passage that we're looking at gives us a little bit of insight into our future. Because God makes it clear. He said, As we practice, as our society practices more and more evil things, there will be a price to pay. And for those that are living good within that society, we, just like we talked about with our, our breastplate of righteousness, our righteousness protects us. And so there's going to be coming times in our society when there's going to be hardships and we need to be ready to step in and meet those hardships to be able to try to redeem people out of that life which is going to cost them a great price. There's a lot of hardships. When you think about it all today, think of all them, all those kids right now that are being put on different kind of genetic medications to try to transition them and they find out later, boy, I really didn't think I, I really wasn't what I thought I was. There's going to be a price to pay in those things and we need to be there to serve and to help and to minister. And in the meantime, we need to continue to be the light and the salt that Christ commanded us to be.